this week on the Back Table Podcast. I think parents are looking to us for guidance and we need to engage. I think instead of making it one side versus both, I say the way the world is. I feel like sometimes we are divorced parents that don't co-parent well at all. We need to be better. Parents shouldn't feel like they're in a tug of war between choice. They do need to make decisions. I mean, not making decisions and not doing anything is not an action plan. There needs to be an action plan and fluency. But we need to support them because the goal, again, needs to be to create the most successful independent adult we can possibly create and that's not happening very well and that's a system failure that's not a child failure i think the system failed them and i think we need to do better Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with a hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. My name is Gopi Shaw, and I'm a pediatric ENT, and today I have Dr. Anita Jayakumar. She is a pediatric otolaryngologist practicing in Akron, Ohio, with a special focus on ear surgery in children. You may have heard Anita on Backtable ENT episode 33, Single-Sided Deafness in Children. And today she's here to talk to us about immersive language and how ENTs can help their patients. Welcome back, Anita. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, Gopi. So good to be back. As always, honored to be on your show. <laughs> it's wonderful to see you. For our audience who may not know you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice? Sure. So I, by practice, am a pediatric otolaryngologist, and I've always had a strong interest in ears. Relatively recently, about three years ago, I started a program, otology program, which is pediatric and adult, and a cochlear implant program, which I run out of Youngstown, Ohio, in Mercy. That's awesome. So today we're going to talk about immersive language. Can you tell us a little bit about what is language and how is that different from speech? Great question. So a lot of today's talk, I think, is going to be sort of like the tomato, tomato kind of thing, but really the words have such relevance. Speech, by definition, is how we produce sounds and words. Language is actually how we use those words when we are using spoken language in the form of communication to let others know of our wants and needs. ASL, or sign language, American Sign Language in the U.S., is also a language, in which case it's a visual language, but it also has all the features of any language, which has its own rules for word formation and word order. So really, speech and language are very distinctive entities. Yeah, when I think of language, I think of more like expression, I think of communication, connection. And when I think of speech, you're right, I just think of the actual just literal movement of my tongue and lips to produce sound. And so when I think of language, it's much more in terms of expressing who we are and how we connect in the world around us, whether it's spoken or sign. A hundred percent. The language skills for a long time now, whatever kind of language, language skills have been shown to be connected to academic performance, occupational success, financial and social success. So really the way we interact with those around us dictates how successful we are. And that really is language, which is why this podcast is so important. Yeah. I wanted to go over terminology. What is immersive language when you when you use that term? So traditionally, immersive language is language where you are completely surrounded by the language you are learning. 
So for example, it's pretty well known that there are immersive schools out there of language. Gopi, I think you're very familiar yeah, with this. Yeah, my, my kids are in a French immersion language. Yeah. And so they spend 60 to 70 percent of their time in school in French. So it's thought to be the most traditional way to learn the language most efficiently and effectively. Not always feasible for everyone, obviously, particularly if we're talking about a second language, but that's what traditionally immersive language is known as. And how is that different from language nutrition? Great question. So language nutrition refers to nutrition in the full sense. So when we talk about food nutrition, that's something we're very familiar with. You want food to be balanced, plentiful, and available. So language nutrition is sort of the same thing. It's a term that has actually been well known by our speech pathology colleagues for eons and really was popularized relatively recently by nurses. And it's used to describe language exposure that's rich in quality and quantity and delivered in the context of social interactions. But most importantly, having a well-in-depth language nutrition is crucial for children's development. And so to just go into it a little bit further about in terms of who and what is involved, you mentioned school because our kids spend half of their time or more in school, in the home and family. And, you know, we talk about having an exposure to lots of the language. So it's whether it's words, signs, just that sort of having engagement and communication and having lots of it to help Absolutely. you connect and express yourself. Is that Absolutely. Is that that's, that's great. I mean, I think there are a few concepts. Absolutely, school is important. But the reality is our children don't go to school in the traditional sense, either preschool at age four or kindergarten at age five. So really, language nutrition starts at home first. And that's really, really an important thing to understand. So parents, as busy as they are, are really the gatekeepers of language nutrition. So really having that lots of communication, reading, dialogue, there's actually a fair amount of literature out there. So if you look at the 1990s, there were these two researchers, Betty Hart and Todd Risley, who studied families from different socioeconomic backgrounds. And while there's controversy with any study, as with theirs, because there was comment on the size of the study, what they did show that based on just level of language exposure, which was connected to socioeconomic status, children had a 30 million word gap. Now, some people don't like the word gap, but this difference in language vocabulary was by age three. So from a concept standpoint, when you think about that's even before a child has started school. I mean, it's really probably when parents are thinking about preschool versus school. So the foundational key of that language exposure is really important. People who criticize the study, it actually was replicated in 329 families in 2017, and they found very, very similar results. And it was done in a more high-techy version than the one in the 1990s. So really, that language nutrition and literacy starts at home. And there's controversy, particularly in the deaf and hard of hearing children, about what that language should be. And that is a whole new debate. The reality is it is easier for parents to teach their children the language of the home, which typically for 95% of families is spoken language. But certainly if they're going to teach a different language, fluency and lots of depth of language is important. So it depends on, a lot of that may depend on the parents and, and if, if the parents themselves, what language they're comfortable with. And it brings me to 
some of the questions that families will ask when they come in, you know, as ENTs, especially in PEDS or general, you know, we see the kids that come in for speech delay. You know, they get a hearing test. It's usually that sort of 18 months to three, four years of age. And some of the questions that I'll get is in terms of language is, well, if they're exposed to two languages, we have one at home, but they have a different language exposure to the outside world. How do you answer those questions? So it's complex. I think if we start with, let's say, two spoken languages, if, for example, a family is Spanish speaking and they are in the U.S., so odds are they are in an English speaking school. Personally, my style is to encourage them with the language of the home. There is data that shows that the linguistic rules actually do cross over. And as long as a child is fluent in both, which they can be, actually, they actually benefit from the building blocks of both languages. Now, it's a little bit more complicated when you talk about spoken language at home and sign language at school. You know, sign, as we've already alluded to, is a very complicated language. And at least for American sign, its origins are actually in French sign. We're not entirely sure when they started, but it's not direct English. So they have their own rules and structure. And I will say that there is a lot of pressure on parents if their children are learning sign language at school, that they probably need to think about trying to also attain some level of fluency at home. I encourage bilinguality if it's possible, but if it's not possible, then they really need to have fluency in at least one language. And that's where sort of the choice and making decisions come in, because those decisions have to be sometimes made really early in somewhat of a vacuum where parents are still trying to figure out a diagnosis that they have never encountered before. For the families that come in and say, oh, well, you know, we have this at home and we have this language that we're exposed to outside of the home. I encourage it all because I do think that language, the regardless of the, you know, whether it's English versus Spanish versus for us in my household, it was Gujarati versus if there is exposure to American sign, because maybe you do have a parent who is deaf or hard of hearing, having all of that, I think does help that that language development again for self-expression and and communication, it does become difficult. We'll kind of get to those scenarios of how to counsel our families or how we, the information we can provide our families when it's a child that is deaf or hard of hearing, an infant that has two hearing parents versus a child that has one or both parents that are deaf or hard of hearing with those nuances of what is our language at home, what's going to be our primary language. That's one layer. And then I do think there's another layer of regardless, it's connecting families. It's connecting our patients with other families and patients that have similar challenges because that's a shared experience that as the pediatric ENT in clinic, we're not always able to, there's only so much, I think, unless you also have that shared experience as a, as a parent. It's a parent perspective that comes into play. I wanted to ask you in terms of some of the kids that come in, you know, again, I, I think of the the speech delay consult, right, in clinic, the hearing test. Sometimes they'll ask, and I, I feel like it's a little bit more mainstream and acceptable now, but I feel like 10 years ago, it wasn't as much. But with babies, with signing at home, tell me a little bit about how you might advise or counsel, especially when they're like that sort of 13 to 22 months of age, and we have maybe three words, and there's frustration because we cannot communicate. We can't tell what the child's needs are. 
Great question. I think it's complex. So first of all, most children who have speech delay will not have hearing loss. But it is important to establish that because if there's an organic reason why they have speech delay, then that needs to be established and tested, which is not as easy as it seems because obviously testing a child under age two, kudos to our audiology colleagues, it is complex. And the children are not necessarily interested in being tested all the time. So <laughs> it does take some doing, but I think it's important. I think it's important for any child with speech delay, any child with ADD, any child with autism, all of those diagnoses, we really need to make sure that the hearing status is well established and well known. Now, as far as language goes, so I'm actually going to backtrack, Opie. I'm going to go to three months of age because the reality is that a child who has hearing is hearing in utero. And language really starts at three months of age. By six months of age, you call a child's name if they have normal hearing and they should turn to you. Guess what? That is language and communication. That's well before we've established that they have speech challenges or language communication challenges. So sometimes when you have not established that there's an organic reason for speech delay, such as hearing loss, if it hasn't been established, well, guess what? The parents still have to raise a child. They have to console them. For example, a child who's profoundly deaf, consoling them to sleep is actually incredibly challenging. You know, Gopi, you and I are parents, and you remember when your baby is literally hysterical and you're kind of like mm -hmm. done the three things, right? You're like, okay, you're fed. Change, you're burped, feed. You're changed. <laughs> what is going on with you, yeah. you know? And then you rock them and you croon and you use a lot of language to soothe them. But imagine that child cannot hear. Well, our speech pathology colleagues are great at this. They'll use things like cued sign, where the child will actually touch the parent and feel their vibrations. That is something the child has experienced in utero. Baby sign can be a really good stopgap to see, especially if a parent has no other means of doing it. So there's a role for all of it. The key is that at some point in time, that really in-depth language needs to come to play. And probably by what you're saying, that like 12 to 16 month age, really there needs to be in-depth language going on. And hopefully by then the baby has established a diagnosis, whether they are deaf and hard of hearing or not. And so whatever organic etiology can also be addressed hand in hand as communication is developing. So when you put it into that perspective, Anita, it brings up two scenarios, right? I think of the, the infants that are severe to profound hearing loss. How does your conversation go? How do you counsel families when it's two parents that are hearing parents and or the family that has one or both parents that are deaf or hard of hearing? So 95% of children who are deaf and hard of hearing are going to be born to hearing parents. So I would say the majority of the parents you'll meet are typically normal hearing parents. And really the first deaf and hard of hearing person that they have encountered is now their child. So you know, this is not an unusual scenario, right? I mean, when you're talking about other potential medical processes, type 1 diabetes, lymphoma, all the awful things that sometimes children experience, this typically it's a healthy child who has a diagnosis as being deaf and hard of hearing. For me personally, the conversations are incredibly long. One is that the parents need a space to express themselves. There's a lot of guilt associated with this. Did I cause this? Am I responsible for this? But yet, when you look at in utero development, ear development starts at four weeks of life, typically before someone knows they're expecting, quite frankly. So you have to let 
that space come out. And at least in the U.S., all the pressures of insurance and administrators, these appointments for some people are 15 minutes. It is just impossible to do all this in 15 minutes. So if that's your practice and you only have a limited amount of time, then I think a space to say it is not your fault. There are resources to support you, get you connected to early intervention uh, because there are services that will come to the child's home in the U.S. that are government funded. And your child has every bit of potential to do well. If you can just have them have those messages as a starting point, that's great. But most of us who see these patients as practiced, my appointment with my new diagnosis babies is an hour and a half to two hours. And there is so much to talk about. So you talk about the guilt. You then, what I do is I show them a video. It's actually a layman's video, but it describes the levels of hearing loss because Again, in our world, we get caught up in the mumbo jumbo of like the complex verbiage and we totally disconnect our parents. We use things like profound, severe, mild. What does that even mean? Right. right. You know, Is that just the parent... hearing myself underwater? Is that mild? Is that moderate? Exactly. You know, yeah. <laughs> so I just play a video and it's a simple video. Anyone can ask it. It's a Flintstones. If you type in and Google the Flintstones hearing loss video, it's a little cartoon. It's about two minutes and it shows the levels of hearing. The audiologists actually have fancier technology that if you have time, they can program the hearing into a booth and the parents can wear headphones and listen to common sounds based on their child's hearing. So I think, first of all, getting them to understand what's going on with their child. And then you talk about the medical workup, the potential interventions, the need to follow the child and make sure. And really, it does take a village of everyone pooling together to help this child be successful. So it's a lot. Now, if the parents are deaf and hard of hearing, they usually have opinions about what they want for their child, and you need to respect that. I think in the medical community, unfortunately, we have not done a really good job of respecting parents' decisions, but they have lived the world more than we have, quite frankly. And I think as long as their decisions are reasonable and the child hopefully has a pathway to success, i.e. becoming an independent adult, I think you support that. You don't alienate them. And that's important too. So you have to have an interpreter there. That's such a basic thing. But the reality is you are responsible as the medical practitioner physician to be able to communicate with your patient. So you have to have interpretive services provided. They should not be under obligation to provide that for you. Yeah. And in terms of when I think of resources for families, whether, you know, I think of for me, it's as a parent, it's going to be a lot more easier for me to identify, obviously, with a hearing parent, because that's who I am. When I think of the deaf or hard of hearing parent, being parents, period, for kids that are deaf or hard of hearing, there's a commonality. And, and I think that, sure, there's hands and voices, there's different support groups where it's, you know, parent led, where, you know, they People try to really give, really to provide connection and support and share experiences, information, build a community. And so how often does that come into play with patient counseling? And are those resources easy to find? And in our practice in ENT, I can't recall like in any of my training being like, you know, make sure we hand out this information or make sure, oh, hey, there's this community here. There's a support group for families. This is really important. How have you gathered some of that information and where can people find it? So in the U.S., it's very state variable. But the basic foundation is that if a child is under age three, 
in almost pretty much every state in the U.S. There's something called early intervention services. And these services are brought to the home, so it's paid for. The parents don't have to worry about the pay, and it's anything from audiology services to other parents to support groups, and they have time. They have more time than you often do in the medical setting, unfortunately. So getting them plugged into those services is, I find, very helpful. Now, if they're over age three, then early intervention doesn't apply, so sometimes you're relying on your local school district and trying to get them plugged in there. Parents supporting parents is huge. The only caveat to that, I will say, in my observation, is that it is important to understand that they are different ranges of hearing loss. Child A next to child B next to child C may all have different kinds of hearing loss, and they all might require different levels of support and resources. So the one thing that sometimes with parent groups you do have to be a bit careful of is that if there's sort of this generality that, oh, for my child this worked, why is it not working for your child? Well, it may not be the right answer for your child. So having that trust to develop with your family so they can come to you with those questions I think is really helpful. But I'm yet to meet a parent who said that a parent support group wasn't helpful. They just have practical answers and questions that, as long as I've done this, that some of those things we don't think of because I'm not the parent of a deaf and hard of hearing child. I mean, they're like my kids. I go fuss at them and run after them to wear their devices and things if that's what they choose. But the reality is I'm not raising them on a 24-7 daily basis. So that support group is really, really helpful. And there's a ton of them. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about how technology plays a role for our patients and our families. Like we all in ENT think of a, a cochlear implants, but tell me a little bit more about some of the other things that maybe we're not talking about, like closed captions, subtitles, et cetera. What comes into the conversation? What have families brought up to you? What have you changed in your clinic for for your patients? Gosh, all of the above. So yes, traditionally, I guess in our world, otolaryngologists, right, we are very hearing aid cochlear implant based. And they have a huge role. If a family picks spoken language for their child and their child is severe, profound, deaf, hard of hearing, or they're less hard of hearing, but they would benefit from hearing assistive devices in the form of hearing aids, that's the route we go. And then you focus on wear time and, again, language, language, language with that wear time. But sometimes, even when they wear the technology, there are environments where sound is not very accessible. So in those situations, closed captioning is very helpful. Most of my families will say closed captioning on TVs, on regular TV shows, is awful. They all say it doesn't keep up with the show. It's five beats behind. You have no idea what's happening. But ironically, we found resources, simple things like Zoom. So Zoom has closed captioning that as long as you keep your pace appropriate, which you would do if you had an in-person interpreter anyway, Zoom actually does a really good job. So there are actually free resources out there, like if you're in a meeting room, that you can have it on a projection screen and just keep your computer in the middle and there's captioning. So if a family is using hearing technology, sometimes it's still important. And certainly if a family is using sign language as their mode of communication, you are obligated to have a sign language interpreter. And having that intentional question asked even if it's a hearing family and their child is doing sign language, then you still have an interpreter because you validate the child's mode of communication. So, but those require intentional thinking and some of that is training your staff because not everyone has video interpretive services. In-person tends to be preferred, but 
if you don't have any, then you have to have this intentional thinking ahead of the patient visit. Because having them come and then write to them, which I unfortunately have had to do before because, you, you know, the staff didn't know or whatnot. It wasn't made clear. But then the patients, given the choice of rescheduling or coming back, they've already spent the time. So you just type and it's like a 20 page document at the end of it. But you have to communicate with them. It's, it's interesting that the different points you just brought up because it highlights different ways in which we could be in terms of equity and providing equitable care. Tell me a little bit more in terms of how health equity plays a role for these families, whether the parents are hard of hearing, and what are our blind spots? Well, as a system, we know that over 50% of children who are deaf and hard of hearing, regardless of level of being deaf and hard of hearing, will not finish high school. This is not a product of their intellectual capacity. This is just a product of the system not working. And the system starts with medicine, and it's in the schools, and it's across the board, quite honestly. So there is a huge gap in systemic support and knowledge that we're not providing well for our children. In fact, the few data points on IQ show that on average, if a child's deaf and hard of hearing, the IQ is higher than the general population. Why? Don't know the answer to that, but it is factual. So when you look at things like that, you know, I talk about education a lot and people are like, oh, she's a doctor. She talks about education. Yeah, I do. But education has been shown to be the most successful, predictable way of getting to success for a child. And one thing I think that gets forgotten when we're really trying to keep our children alive is that, yeah, we're trying to keep our children alive, but we're trying to get them to be successful, independent adults. And when we're squabbling about things, they're not becoming successful adults. And we really haven't moved that metric very well, even with all the technology and access points that are out there. So I think across the board, we just need to create awareness that these kids can achieve anything they want, assuming they don't have other medical things going on, but most of them don't. But it does take intentional planning, decision-making, lots of language, and moving forward. Just sitting and waiting for it to happen, it's not going to happen. It has to be intentional, and that's so important. Yeah, you make a great point because constantly thinking about it and constantly thinking about or consistently thinking about some of these details, right? Like it's very easy to make generalized statements and, you know, whatnot, but in terms of concrete changes or needs that our patients require, whether it's information or actual things going on, it's what's happening now, what are, what are we missing, and what's going on now five years later? Where have we gone? And we should, in the at least in the medical world, we are the gatekeepers along with our audiology colleagues and our speech pathology colleagues, because nobody knows the ear like we do. Like nobody does. So we know that the ear, yes, complex anatomy and all of that, people are scared of the ear. I know this in practice. But at the same time, there's a function aspect to the ear that's exquisitely important. And that we need to be the gatekeepers of that and work with our primary care partners to make sure that we're all working together on these children because that's what they need to be successful. And I will say, you know, there's a lot of pressure on general otolaryngologists to know everything about everything. These are where like partnerships, I think, are very helpful. I have four general otolaryngology partners and they send all their newly diagnosed children to me. Why? One, I have the infrastructure to set the foundation for these families, which is really important. 
but also because they need to get that foundation piece because, again, those zero to three years are so critical that you want to get those kids on the right path because that way they have a chance and they don't start school already super behind. Yeah. So just to get a little bit more specific about resources for families, give me some examples of resources for families that, and I don't want to keep making the distinction of with two hearing parents and a parent that has harder hearing or is deaf, but when we bring it back to the initial point of what's the language at home, those differences might come into play more because with two hearing parents, language at home is going to be a spoken language. And at home of one or both parents who are deaf or hard of hearing, we would assume that it's going to be sign language. And so tell me about just your initial set of resources for these families and their patients. And then what other resources that you might have for families that are deaf, parents that are deaf or hard of hearing? So early intervention, like I said, Guide by Your Side is a national organization that is a parent support group that will, again, also reach out to the family and kind of support them from a parental view. Guide by Your Side has different, so where I practice, there's not a strong Guide by Your Side presence. So these are variable, which is why I kind of keep going to early intervention because early intervention tends to know what the local resources are. The other is kind of also knowing who your early interventionalists are, because what ends up happening in some states and some regions is if there's only one culture that is predominantly accepted, sometimes the parents get a lot of pushback if they make a choice that is not in the norm, so to speak. But the parents' choice need to be accepted, in which case sometimes you're going outside of your region to get them support. But most states, you can find support on both areas and sort of in the middle if that's what they choose. The big thing is finding support that makes sure that it gets them out of the inertia, so to speak, gets them moving forward with some kind of language. And then you can say, well, if you're putting pressure on them with a newborn to pick a language, what if they decide to change? Well, of course they can. None of this stuff is set in stone. Again, the nice thing about language crossing over is that if you have really been in depth in whatever language you started with, and then you choose to pick up a second language, then that should only benefit them as opposed to hurt them. But more importantly, the child's not behind. So early intervention for birth to three is foundational. Uh, When they get to school age, things to look at are, at least in the U.S., across the states, there are things called 504 plans or IEPs. And again, highly variable in different schools. But the idea is that you have, by law, set up a system that you're going to provide support for the child in school. You're not necessarily lowering the bar of education for the child. That's not the goal with any of these. You're making sure that they get the support they need, whether in the form of smaller classrooms or educational audiology being available to make sure that the acoustics in the room are appropriate for whatever technology they may or may not be using. Providing the resources for a sign language interpreter, if that's the mode of communication they used. All those things are covered under those umbrellas, but unfortunately they have a stigma. You know, you hear an IEP and you think that suddenly the kid is like, has a developmental problem or an intellectual problem. Well, that's not it at all. It hopefully is to just give them the support they need to be as successful as possible. So Anita, we've talked a lot about how resources for our parents and families and, you know, the focus on infants. But tell me a little bit about your older kids who are deaf or hard of hearing. What are some resources or ways to empower them? 
Such a great question. One, empowerment. What a strong word. We want our children to advocate for themselves. And advocating for themselves doesn't mean fighting or arguing. We want them to know what their rights are and ask for them. So if a child has hearing technology, such as a hearing aid or an implant, and the battery goes out during school, we want them to have the confidence to be able to go to the teacher and say, I need a new battery, because if they can't hear the class, then there's no purpose to them being in the class. If a child is supposed to have a sign language interpreter to communicate in the classroom, and there's not one provided, the child needs to go to the parent and say, you know, in that classroom, I didn't have an interpreter, and that service needs to be provided. I mean, these are some of the things that the 504 plan and the IEP, at least in the U.S. that we talked about, provide. And then, quite frankly, you know, we didn't talk about this much in the from a resource standpoint. Most states have one to two deaf schools for children from elementary through high school. These schools are typically ASL, but they are an environment for children to go and get an education and get a community and get housed and meals and things like that. And those are supported by government funding. So another resource for parents and children to at least know about, typically the schools are in one to two very large cities, so they may not be local, but that resource also does exist. And as we slowly round things out, if our listeners want to gain any more knowledge on these topics, where should we be reading? Oh, boy. So resources-wise, I think if you're in the technology route and speaking spoken language, the American Cochlear Implant Alliance has a lot of resources. A.G. Bell has a ton of resources that have been around for a long time. ASHA, which has actually is a pretty neutral place to go to for resources. Some of the problem with some of this is that depending on where you go, it's going to be somewhat biased resources. But the reality, like I said, is that at some point you do have to pick off the inertia and move forward in a direction. So hopefully finding the resources that support that direction are helpful across the whole country and really in the world. I mean, deaf culture is very, very well established. In fact, when you look at the number of languages in the U.S., typically number one is English, two is Spanish, and three is ASL. So they have a ton of resources out there, and they have communities that meet and will support you. But that is also evolving. The historic deaf culture, as we knew it 20 years ago, was very anti-cochlear implant and anti-hearing technology. I will say that evolution is in progress. There's no one-size-fits-all necessarily. So I think if the family wants to be bilingual with spoken language and sign language, that is feasible. But again, fluency in both is so important. And then any final pearls, Anita? I think parents are looking to us for guidance and we need to engage. I think instead of making it one side versus both, I say the way the world is. I talked to you about the scopey. I feel like sometimes we are divorced parents that don't co-parent well at all. And we need to be better. You know, parents shouldn't feel like they're in a tug of war between choice. They do need to make decisions. There's no doubt about that. I mean, not making decisions and not doing anything is not an action plan. There needs to be an action plan and fluency. But we need to support them because the goal, again, needs to be to create the most successful, independent adult we can possibly create. And that's not happening very well. And that's a system failure. That's not a child failure. That's just a system failure. And I think we need to do better. 
Well, thank you so much, Anita. For our listeners who want to learn more from you or reach out to you, are you on any social media? I mean, my email is always really good. Email me anytime. I unfortunately am not very active on social media because apparently I've become old somewhere in the last 10 years. <laughs> but I'm more than happy to respond to any email. And we are pretty well connected. Our world, the hearing loss world, is pretty small. So regardless of where you're in the country, I can probably connect you with people in your state. Now, if you're Gopi, I know your show is international. So I don't know that I know everyone in Europe, but certainly I think we can get you resources and try to get you along a path. And we're happy to do that. We really do need to work together to make our children more successful. Absolutely. I think it's a wrap. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer, Design and Digital Marketing, led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Taylor's Version Hess, Social Media and PR by Chi Ding, Administrative Support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.